0: Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter four this morning and if you should need a copy there are some of the pew racks in front of you I should have looked beforehand to tell you exactly which page number it's on but it's kind of in the first part sort of in the middle Daniel chapter four is our theme we've we've taken a brief look at Daniel some of the themes and really um, the first half of the book of the da- of book of Daniel the second half of Daniel is very prophetic and it's the visions that God gave Daniel that speak to the future and we'll deal with those at some point in the future. We'll come back to those again. But for our purposes today, we're looking at the, the correlations between the times and difficulties of God's people Israel in the Old Testament when they were taken by the Babylonians into captivity. Now some of the parallels are not quite so obvious. Um, our captivity here is a little bit different. We haven't been taken by an enemy people But we live in a world that is an enemy world, and this world is not our home. Peter wrote much about that, about this understanding of the Christian life as an exilic life. We're living as exiles, and that this is not our home, but we are citizens of a better country. And the hope of that better country, the things that we've sung about today, that's our encouragement. That's our strength. that's That's what tethers us to God's goodness, God's grace. That's what keeps us. Faithful as we navigate the difficulties that we're in. But there are some parallels. When you look at the situation and the circumstances of Daniel, you can't help but draw some of those, some of those lines. The prevalence of evil, the difficulty of, of being faithful to God, the challenges to so many aspects of obedience... And What does God want us to do? What are the lessons he wants us to learn? And I've got one big one that I want to leave you with today. And if I tell you this story correctly, if I recount this true story correctly, I believe it'll be unmissable, unmistakable. And I pray you'll take it with you. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we look into your word, that your Holy Spirit would use these these words of yours, these divine words that you've inspired. And Father, speak them to our life, speak them to our situation, speak them to our hearts. And Father, that's just an amazing thing to think that there's not one of us in this room that you don't know completely. I mean, absolutely. And that we may hide many things from many people. There is nothing hidden, hidden here today from you. So Father, I pray you take this word and by the power of your spirit, just bring it to bear on us. And Father, we would respond to it. Father, if there's someone in this room that has never heard the good news, though we live in a a difficult and dark time, and though we are guilty because of our sins, you have loved us and offered us a Savior. And there is a means to restoration. There is a means and a way to hope. There is a way back to you. And there's good news there. And Father, I pray that would make that good news clear today for that person who might be hearing it the first time. Father, I'm also mindful this morning that someone in this room might be hearing it for the last time. You alone know our our days. They're numbered by you. You alone hold all of life in your hands, past and present and future. So, Father, by your grace, if there's someone here today hearing about you in a way like this for the last time, I pray that they would respond. And, Father, as your people today gather, I pray that we all would respond by faith and obedience. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Daniel chapter 4. We're going to read this in sections. And I want to talk about each section and explain the story as that unfolds. And then I want to draw some connecting points to your life and mine this morning. So look with me at Daniel chapter 4. We're going to read the first few verses. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Let's look at the context of this this proclamation. This sounds something very official, maybe even something a bit officious. Uh, Here is King Nebuchadnezzar making this grand declaration as if he has discovered something profound. And really, in a sense, he has. At the end of chapter 3 we see Nebuchadnezzar issuing this edict to all people that essentially protects the religious freedom of the Jews. Before that, those Jewish people who refused to bow to the false god that he had created, this 90-foot statue, essentially of himself, this golden statue, those who refused to bow, he condemned to death in a fiery furnace. But if you remember the story in chapter 3, God himself intervened. And whether it was a Christology or Christophany A theophany, an appearance in the Old Testament of Christ before his incarnation in the New Testament. Or God simply sent an angelic messenger to protect them. God interceded, walked among them in the flames, and they were unharmed. There's nothing that he could do to deny that. He had to acknowledge that. This happened before all the people. So in that moment, he responds, and he gives some sort of acknowledgement to this God that he has just discovered. He acknowledged his existence and in chapter 4, he acknowledges his power, but what Nebuchadnezzar has not done yet, he's not ex- acknowledged the sole existence of the God of the Hebrews. You see, in his theology, as it's beginning to be developed, there are many gods, many cultures with their own gods, and each of them have power and authority and do works for their own people and their own regions, and this is the way he thought. But now he's discovered a new one, the God of these captive Hebrews and he couldn't deny what he did, he couldn't deny what he saw, he couldn't deny the deliverance that he gave, but he doesn't know if this is the only God, or he doesn't know if this God has ultimate authority over all other so-called gods, false gods, but he will, and he's going to discover that. So don't read too much into his early proclamation yet. It looks like the proclamation of someone who knows Christ, but that's us looking back at it through our own lens. He wasn't there yet, but God's going to get him there. But even in his statement, there's already an indication of what would be the crippling sin of Nebuchadnezzar. Pride. Pride. Even in his statement in chapter 4 at the beginning, which sounds good to our ears, he's basically saying look at what God has done to show his favor uniquely to, to me. Look at how God has elevated me. Look at the wondrous works he has done for me, what he's done for him. It's not going to be very long before God is going to begin to undo Nebuchadnezzar he's going to tear down the foundation of Nebuchadnezzar he's going to hit him at the very point of his pride he's going to reduce him to something even less than a human so that he might show him who he really is and in so doing in this story of God's humbling and then restoring Nebuchadnezzar there is a critical lesson for us right now today in 2023 America about how you and I should live and how you and I should face the world that we live in. See, this is really a story of two different kingdoms. There are two different kingdoms in play here, two different kings at work. There's the most powerful king on earth, the one that possessed the most military might, the one who at that moment seemed to be riding the tide of history. That's Nebuchadnezzar. By all appearances, the Babylonian gods are superior to the Hebrew god. How do we know? Well, theirs are the conquering gods. God's people, the Israelites, have been humbled. They've been conquered. They're subservient. It looks like evil has won. Are you tracking with me? Do you ever look at the world around you and say it looks, it looks like evil has won. It looks like evil's prevailed. And though we may not voice this exactly, we might think this, or underneath us, subconsciously, we're feeling this. God, where are you? Why are you allowing these things to happen? Why are you allowing this evil to prevail in so many places? And not just in our own context, not just in our own American context, but around the world. Yesterday I had the privilege to officiate the wedding of Isaac Vadavana. If that name sounds familiar to you, that's C.V.'s son. You remember C.V. is one of our missional partners in India. And so this was probably the most multicultural wedding I've ever done. Multiple nationalities there. And then the celebration at the end was probably a little bit more Indian than American. And so it was a pretty fascinating celebration altogether. And I was talking with one of the gentlemen who'd flown over from their home state in India. And we were talking about the persecution of Christians there. Some of this you may read if you're, if you're reading along these lines on social media and things. It's not covered too much in mainstream media for sure. But just the, just the abject horror That's being forced upon Christians. In Manipur, for instance, you can Google the, the region of Manipur. Thousands and thousands of Christians displaced. Hundreds of churches burned down. I mean, genuine persecution simply because of their faith. And for those believers, what I'm going to share today has to be true as well. What's true for us must be true for them. Because God's word is true in all times and places and for all people. And it would be easy for those people to think much more than you and I. That evil has won, evil has conquered. And that's the context of the Hebrews. How did we get here? How did this happen? Where is any hope? They're living as exiles. According to chapter 4, verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in his house and prospering. I mean, If that's not a picture of the culture that we live in today, that evil seems to be at ease. Christians seem to be on the run and, and not only backtracking but being crushed in so many arenas. And evil just is at ease and, and prosperous in its palace. And this was a condition of, of Daniel and the three young men we saw last week. But the one true God is about to crush the false sense of autonomy that Nebuchadnezzar has. This idea that you rule your own world, this idea that you're the captain of your own destiny. That this idea that you get to determine how things are going to play out because there is no God who could overrule you. And not just that autonomy, but that sovereignty. That sovereignty. The idea that you have the power to make things happen according to your will. The idea that you have the ability to say yes to what you want to see and no to what you don't and that you can control all those circumstances. All that is about to come undone. And so this statement that Nebuchadnezzar made... Even though it seems to be rather pompous, it's about to be realized. Verse 3, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. You see, ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar is going to declare these words that we see at the end of the chapter. Look down at verses 34 and 35. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And look at what now he realizes. And we'll fill in the gaps in just a moment to how he got here. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You will not find a clear statement in all of the Bible regarding the sovereignty of God than that. Listen to those words again. What does sovereignty mean in biblical terms? He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Where does God's authority end? It has no limits. His kingdom has no borders. He does as he will in heaven and on earth, and none can stay his hand, Who can deny him his authority? Who can stop or thwart his purposes? None. And he cannot be questioned. None can say, what have you done? So let's look at the story that led to that ultimate conclusion and why that matters to me and you a great deal. Start at verse 5. Nebuchadnezzar said, I saw a dream. This is his second dream in the book so far, sort of a major plot lines or plot devices. He said, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Now this is not the point of the message. It's really not even a sub-point. It's just an interesting thing to me that we continue to do the same things again and again that don't work. That we continue to look to the same Sources for wisdom or truth or guidance or direction. that are empty and fruitless and worthless. And Nebuchadnezzar is still, do, still doing that. He's still clutching to his worldview. He's still clutching to what he knows and thinks. Even though they failed him before, they've shown themselves to be false, um, to be nothing but a pretense. And yet he goes to them again. They cannot do it. Verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. You see, the transition hasn't happened yet for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel named his Belteshazzar, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, plural. Again, he's not yet to the point of recognizing the uniqueness of the one true God, nor his sovereignty over all things heaven and earth. He said he has the spirit of the holy gods. So I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it you get the picture, the imagery? A giant tree that spreads its branches over the earth, the centerpiece of all all that is, all of creation. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, "'Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. "'Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. "'Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from, from its branches.'" But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men in my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you're able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So you have the picture of the story, the the image that he had, this, this profound image, and unlike the first dream that he had, he actually has some of the interpretation already given to him. A messenger from heaven gives him... The message, the interpretation of it, the tree will be chopped down. Every benefit that you saw in it will be lost. All of its grandeur will be gone. Everything that it was for will be abandoned. And then it shifts gears from talking about a tree to talking about a person, him and he, and what's going to happen to that person. Daniel begins the interpretation in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Because God had placed this dream in Nebuchadnezzar, and because God had placed Daniel in Babylon for such a time as this, God was able to show, or Daniel was able to perceive from God's showing what the dream was about. And what he saw alarmed him, because he saw the consequence here, the undoing, not just of one person, but the effects that this would have on civilization and culture and his people. And so there's some troubling about it. Apparently Nebuchadnezzar can recognize that. So he says, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Why does it trouble him? Because Daniel knows that Beltesh- I mean Daniel knows that Nebuchadnezzar is a target, that this is about him. And he wishes it were not so, wishes that what's about to come could come for somebody else. The tree you saw, verse 20, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, in which there was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and, and whose branches of the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king. The tree represents you, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. It doesn't mean that he's a god. It simply means he is the most powerful political figure on earth, and his kingdom is growing and growing to what they can perceive and see covers the land. Whose leaves are beautiful, fruit abundant, and food for all, under which the beasts have found shade, all of that is his kingdom. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. This is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Do you catch that? From the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O oh King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Okay, that's a long passage. I want to make sure you're sticking with me. Nebuchadnezzar, in the comfort and ease of his palace, what happened with those three young men in chapter 3 didn't really threaten him. In in a sense, in his paganism, he's a little bit reminiscent of, uh, for me like like a Hindu person today. One more god to a pantheon of gods doesn't really change the equation. Yes, I will give you freedom to worship your gods too, as long as I'm still preeminent. And in this ease and comfort, everything is going well for him in his kingdom, and he is in power and authority. He has this dream. And as Daniel begins to interpret it, you can imagine from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, I like this. This is a good one. I, I love this dream. As it starts up, everything from the beginning has got to speak to his weakest and most vulnerable part, his pride. I'm the tree whose branches cast over the whole earth. I am the center of creation. Everyone is dependent on me. Everyone benefits from me. I've got that sort of authority. I love this picture that me, right now, everything centers on me. Much like that head of gold, I'm the centerpiece, the most pivotal person in all the universe. But as the dream begins to unfold, he sees something very dark. This person who esteemed himself as a God, God himself, the one true God, is now going to reduce not to just be like other men, but to be even less than other men, to be like a, a beast of the field. His, his very humanity is going to be stripped from him by God. So Daniel says, this is the interpretation cast down from this place as this cosmic tree that covers the whole earth, Nebuchadnezzar is instead going to find his home with the birds and the animals of the field. But when the trees cut down, that messenger from heaven gave a very clear message, leave the stump and the roots. Leave the stump and the roots. I'm not going to totally uproot this tree. I'm not going to decimate and destroy it forever. But even in this statement of judgment towards Nebuchadnezzar, What do you see? You see God's grace. Because this dream is a God-given warning to him. And that's verified by what Daniel said to him. Nebuchadnezzar, king, repent. Repent. God is humbling you for your pride. God is humbling you now for your sense of authority and, and your own sense of misplaced sovereignty. God is challenging you now for your evil, for your wickedness. He's giving an opportunity For repentance, he's leaving room. Command to leave the stump of the tree of its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you at the moment of your repentance. There's a lesson here for us that this pagan king who thinks he has authority over the earth and over God's people is actually completely in the grip of God, completely under the sovereign control of God. And even here, God is working his grace and offering opportunity for repentance. So let's look at what happens next, how Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. And again, he had an opportunity to respond, and he didn't. How good is God's grace? How long did God afford him the opportunity of repentance? An entire year. entire year to consider what God had said. An in- entire year to converse with Daniel, God's prophet. An, an entire year to consider his life and ways. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar, all this that Daniel had prophesied, all this that the dream had revealed. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, just imagine the scene, this one who envisions himself, this grand tree of the universe. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in his mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be at the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. You get the picture? And at the end of the days, end of what days? At the end of the days of the disciplining hand of God, the powerful stroke of God's consequence and punishment I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. And here's why. Listen to what he said. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? no longer does he see Jehovah God, the God of the Israelites, as just one of many tribal or territorial gods. This is the true and everlasting God who rules heaven and earth with absolute authority and autonomy, absolute sovereignty. At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, my counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble the tale of two kingdoms the most powerful kingdom on earth was brought to nothing until that most powerful of kings could recognize the one true king of heaven and earth now the most simplistic and superficial way i could explain the value of that story to you and for me would be some sort of moral lesson. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride is the beginning of a fall. But there's something much deeper here, something that would give a sense of hope to a people who, for all outer circumstances, for all appearances, should be hopeless. People who have no autonomy. People who have lost all ability to decide what they're going to do and how they're going to live. People who have been forced to bow before a false religion. People who have been forced to live under a pagan, godless king. People who have been forced to acclimate to a culture unlike their own. People who have been indoctrinated and assimilated. People under the thumb of evil. God was teaching a lesson not just to Nebuchadnezzar. He was simply the object. God was teaching a lesson to his people and to people like Daniel Who at some time in the not too distant future is going to have to face a choice. Will I trust in the God of heaven and earth who does what he will and none can stay his hand? Or will I bow to this culture and lose, save my life or lose it for the sake of the great king? See, there's some messages for God's people both then and now. And because the scriptures have been preserved for us, there's a reason why we have these long and sort of fascinating stories. We say, what does that have to do with me? These dreams and visions and Nebuchadnezzars and Belteshazzars and all of that. It's a reminder to us, first and foremost, that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God's sovereignty means at least these two things. It has many more implications, but it has no fewer implications or means no less than these two things. One, God is king. He's king of all that is. He has the right. He has the authority to do what he will. But our God is not a figurehead king. He's not a spiritualized king. He's not a soon-to-becoming king. He is an ever-present king. And in his rule and reign, not only does he have the right Because he made it, and he sits and rules over it, but he has the power to do with it what he wants. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we talk about his right as God, and we talk about his unlimited power as God. Now, the good news for us as Christians is when we think about God in these terms, we don't disconnect these understandings of God from the rest of his character. For us to know that God is good, and that the King of Heaven, the God of the universe, will do what is right, That is our hope, that the one who has the right to do what he will and the power to do what he will will do what is right and what is good and will accomplish all his purposes. Margaret Clarkson said, The sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil. But that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of our sovereign God. All evil, whether localized, nationalized, universalized, all evil is held firmly within the hand of our sovereign God. All evil is subject to him. And evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. God is the Lord of human history and of the personal history of every member of his redeemed family. So think of the story that we've seen unfolding so far in the book of Daniel. God showed his sovereign power and his saving love for three men personally. He delivered them from the fire. He will do the same for Daniel and deliver him the mouth of a lion. But in so doing and showing it personally to individuals, he's communicating it collectively to a people, Israel. And by preserving it in his word, he's teaching us the same lesson of, of my absolute sovereignty. When we talk about God's sovereignty, consider the scope for a moment. God's sovereignty is over what has happened. Why are they in exile? Because God caused or allowed it to happen. Long had been their rebellion against God. Long had been their rejection of the prophets of God. Long had been their refusal to live under the commands of God. They had the title of God's people. But they did not live it. They were not living as God commanded them to live. They were not keeping covenant with God. They were an unfaithful people. And God had given them a mark of a covenant, which was his law. This is how you will live in relationship to one another by keeping these laws. This is how you'll live in relationship to me. This is our covenant together with me as your king. And they had rejected that. So in a word, you could say that the Israelites under the Babylonian captivity were getting exactly the sort of government and culture and conditions that they deserved. When a people continue to refuse the rule of God, When they reject the teachings of God, the commands of God, when they act as if functionally there is no God, maybe they claim otherwise, but in their day-to-day decisions, they live self determinate autonomous sort of lives, they deserve the consequences of the government they get. Have you ever considered that the world that we live in today, the government that we have and the pressure that's upon Christians and the shifting tide of morality is exactly what we deserve? That it is the fruit of generations of choices, it is the ref- it is the fruit of decades of rebellion against God, rejection of God's rule over us, rejection of God's definitions of morality and right and wrong and family and sex and gender and so on and so on. And so now we're living. God is sovereign over what has happened, but God's also sovereign over what will happen. He's sovereign over will what will happen. God is not always responding and reacting. Our, our choices and decisions or what evil happens in the world? God is sovereign over what will happen, what is to come. God will accomplish this, his purpose. Their rejection of him, their rebellion against him, nor the refusal of the pagan kings and rulers to accept him or acknowledge him, none of those will determine the future of God's people. God is sovereign over his people, Israel. and He's also sovereign over his enemies, in this case, Babylon, We saw that already in the Scriptures. God was not simply the God of the Hebrews when they were in 400 years of captivity in Egypt. God was also the God of the Egyptians. And soon Pharaoh and all the false gods of Egypt would be systematically destroyed, reduced to nothing, demonstrating there is no God but this God, Jehovah God. We think of God's sovereignty. It's not just God's rule in the life of you as a believer. When I become a Christian and I make him Lord of my life. You know, it's one of those phrases I always just cringe at. None of us have the ability or the authority, much less, to make God Lord of anything. We, when we become believers, we surrender and submit to him who is Lord. He is Lord. And that's why when we see the scriptures of the end, we see the revealing of the King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee bowing. When people see Jesus at the revelation, the coming of Christ, when King Jesus reappears, people will not be saying, you know what, I'll make you Lord. You look like a qualified Lord to me. You look like you have what it takes. I'll make you Lord. He is Lord, and everyone will bow. And so he is sovereign, not only over his own people, but he's also sovereign over his enemies. It looked like, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, that he was sovereign. It looked like to the Babylonians that they were and it looked like to the Israelites that the Babylonians and their king had all authority and autonomy, but they did not. God did. He's sovereign over the weak and the strong, he's sovereign over the bad and the good. Where does his authority not prevail? Nowhere. And in his sovereignty, when we talk about God's power and ability and right to rule, remember that God has promised that he will accomplish all that he purposes. These are the, as Margaret Clarkson said, These are the bedrock components of our faith, particularly in difficulty. Personal difficulty. Why is this happening to me? Why is God allowing this evil to be perpetrated on me? But also in our collective faith. Why is God allowing this? God will accomplish his purposes. Isaiah 46, verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Remember this and stand firm. I want for you to have a passage like Isaiah 46 to be so rooted in you, so deeply rooted, that you'll have it in that moment where you need to stand firm. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Remember these stories. Remember the sovereign work of God in every time and place, conquering evil, offering grace, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I think every Christian needs to have at the bedrock of their faith this foundational, unshakable, immovable, undeniable, inarguable conviction. My counsel shall stand, says God, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And I will do it. What would give Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego the sort of confidence to say, our God can deliver us. He will deliver us. But even if he does not, we still will not bow as they approached the a fiery furnace. It's the confidence of this. They remembered, they stood firm, knowing that God is sovereign. And not only will God accomplish all of his purposes, but here's a challenge to all of us today in the times in which we live. When we're tempted to be fearful, when we're tempted to lose faith, when we're tempted to have more doubt than we do confidence or assurance, When we're we're tempted to to back down or to quit, remember that God regards distrust of him just as seriously as he regards disobedience to him. To not trust him in the moment. To not trust him in in the crucible where it's hard to be faithful To not trust that God is going to work out His plans and that we are called to be faithful no matter the cost is no different than just gross disobedience. Consider this section from Psalm 78. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Speaking of that wilderness generation whose faith seemed to waffle and vacillate, and no matter how much God did for them and how much God displayed His power, in their world, in their lives, how much good personally he did for them. They still were constantly challenged with with doubt, disbelief, distrust. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob or Israel. His anger rose against Israel. Look at verse 22. Because they did not believe in God and trust his saving power. So when three young men face bowing before a false god or dying for the true God, there was no question. Because for them, they believed in God. And they trusted his saving power. So in adversity, in difficulty, what are we to hold tightly to? What should be those marks of faith that identify true believers? To know that God is unlimited in his sovereignty. He's unlimited. He doesn't try. He does. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be thwarted. He cannot be overcome. He's unlimited. But God is also infinite in his wisdom, and you and I are not. When I say infinite in his wisdom, God's plans and purposes prevail. God is purposeful in his plans. God is intentional in his actions. God is working out everything, as the scripture says, in conformity to his will. It is not simply that God is all-powerful. God is perfectly wise. He's infinitely wise, And there is a plan and purpose that God is working out. And we are not either of those things. But unlike the pagan gods of Babylon or Persia or Egypt, God is perfect in love. He's perfect in love. And if you and I believe those three things, when I'm facing the difficult things of my life, I can have the faith of the three young men who says, I know that God can. I believe that God will. That's my statement of faith. But even if he does not, I'm still going to trust him. I I can pray in the face of cancer or terminal illness or catastrophe. I know that God can and I believe that he will. But even if he will not, I will yet trust him. Or as Job said, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. I'll have faith in him. Because I know who God is. And we know of our ultimate redemption in him, and we know the ultimate promise he has for us as exiles. But God has not promised to give every good thing to us in this life and in this place and in this country. And when I say country, I don't mean the U.S., I mean this world. Because there's a better country he's saved us for. But every good thing that he's promised us, every good thing he intends to do, he will give and he will do. And we know that we will be delivered. Therefore, here's lesson number three. I read all that text to you today, an entire chapter of multiple verses. I've talked to you about sovereignty today to simply make one point, one lesson for God's people then and now. No matter the circumstances, you and I can relentlessly trust in Him. We can relentlessly trust in Him. Relentlessly meaning we will not let go of Him. No matter what we see, no matter how things make us feel. No matter the fears that may come our way, no matter the doubts that might assail our intellect, no matter the culture in which we live, the times and places, the governments that we live under, the rules that are put, placed upon us, the restrictions that might try to keep us from being faithful to our King, we can relentlessly trust in Him. Jerry Bridges, in his beautiful little book, a book you could read in an afternoon, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. He said, God in his love always wills what is best for us. You believe that? God in his love always wills what is best for us. This was the distinction that Jesus made about himself and the God of this world. He said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you would have life, and life to the full. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best for us. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. You need something to hang on to? You need something with deep roots, with real meaning? You want to you have something that will tether you to the goodness of God, the strength of God, the grace of God? It's that confident statement. In his love, he always wills what is best. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. And that, that's why we trust him. That's why we trust him. And what I share with you today may seem like, well, of course, we trust him. I'm not talking about simply trusting him in times of ease. I'm not simply talking about trusting him when things are peaceful when you're tranquil. I'm talking about trusting him in the fire, in the pit, under the thumb of the enemy, when your faith is challenged. Will you trust him relentlessly to know that God has not relinquished control? That he is a sovereign and good father. And he will not allow evil to touch you outside of his permission. Just as he did for Job. Just as these young men. Everything is purposeful in his world and you and I can trust him. Our response is to be faithful. To not back down. Lesson number one, we said we will not compromise. We will not defile ourselves for our God by compromising the beliefs and behaviors of this world, we will not compromise. And lesson number two, we said we will not bow to false gods. We will not call a lie the truth. We will not give allegiance to. We will not yield authority to. We will not give fidelity to a false god. No, we have one king. And when the kingdoms of this world challenge the kingdom of Christ, we will say we must obey God rather than men. We won't bow. Why will we not do that? Why will we refuse to compromise? And why will we refuse to bow? Because we relentlessly trust in him who is king. And he's a good king. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. Just for a moment, the reason I ask you to do this, I just want you to have some peaceful time to think without much distraction. Just to close your eyes and consider what you've heard. Maybe there's somebody who's listening and some of this requires some, some additional information to make the pieces fit. That information is, is this. This is God's world. He made it. You are God's creation. He has the right of rule over this world and right over you. All that is, is his and belongs to him by him and through him and for him. All things exist, the Bible says. And in that relationship of creator with his creation, in God's goodness towards us, he makes himself known. He demonstrates his power and his might and all that we see in creation. He desires more than that we would acknowledge him from afar or admire him. His great desire for us is to live in loving relationship with him, to know his love for us, To give our love and worship and faithfulness back. But we have sinned against him. The story in every generation, in every culture, is the sinfulness of God's creation. The sinfulness of people against the one true king, the one true God. Again and again we see the storyline in scripture of God revealing himself. And people rejecting that revelation. God bringing judgment In some cases, we see those respond like Nebuchadnezzar and bow before the one true king. In others, we see those simply refusing, 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 offer after offer after offer of grace until they are destroyed. This is the storyline. that One day, we're going to see this one true king again ourselves. Everyone will. It won't be a matter of that's your religion versus mine, that's your truth versus my truth. There will be one true God, one true religion, one faith, Christ. I guess my challenge to you is this. If you're not a Christian yet, to embrace him now. What separates you from him is sin. Sin. He is the sovereign God, the perfect king, our righteous judge. And to sin against him brings ultimate judgment. The the eternality of of sin and punishment that can only be paid for in hell. Forever sinfulness of man, forever being paid for in hell. But he offers you good news that in this condition of lostness and brokenness and sinfulness, God has made a way that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. And he sends Jesus. Jesus, the very Son of God, comes into the world to be the bearer of our sin. I came to save sinners, Jesus said. How do he do this? He lives perfectly, facing every temptation but never sinning. He is acceptable to God as a sacrifice for our sins, for he has no sins of his own. And God treated Jesus as if he were the worst of all of humanity so that all those who put their faith and trust in him could be treated as if they were Jesus before the Father.